You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. The idea of life being a text implies that someone else is meant to see it, read it, understand it, and discuss it. So the next sequential question is, who is that someone else supposed to be? Could it be implied that someone else is meant to be our descendants? Well, if my life, my text, is meant to be for our descendants, then I must explore how can I live my life as a good ancestor? There's a podcast I'm enthralled with called Good Ancestor by Layla Saad. Layla is a black British Muslim who lives in the Middle East with her husband and two children. In the beginning of each episode, she lets the listener know that her life is driven by these burning questions. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and for those who will come after I'm gone. These questions are quite elusive, and for me to really grapple with them, I must be honest with myself about the topics of liberation, justice, and healing. I know liberation, justice, and healing is action. I also know that liberation, justice, and healing in action is dangerous. It's dangerous because it's putting something or someone more specifically yourself, at risk. Please let me clarify. True risk means that your income, your health, access to shelter, access to food, your life, are in danger of being taken away. So when I examine my life and my chosen path as being an educator, can I really say that I am being a good ancestor and creating a legacy of liberation, justice, and healing? The simple answer, which is rooted in my inferiority complex, no. The nuanced one, no. And yes. First, the no. I, like many of you, attend a church that is aligned with my values, especially around the importance of racial justice. And we as a church love to talk about our ancestors who fought for liberation, justice, and healing. But it leaves me with a false narrative that I myself am doing justice work just because I can talk about it, name it, and celebrate it without putting myself in any real danger. For years, I've carried around this false narrative into my role of an educator every time I would point out the injustice in white supremacy, but I wouldn't take any action that would actually put me in real risk of losing my job. The harsh reality is that our ancestors, which we speak so fondly of, did real work for liberation, justice, and healing, which meant they were in real danger at their time period. They were hated by the majority, they were not popular, and constantly chose to put themselves at risk. Martin Luther King was not popular. He was imprisoned multiple times and assassinated. 
Angela Davis was not popular. She owned guns, got fired from her teaching job, was imprisoned for 18 months, and was almost killed by the state of California. Stokely Carmichael, Asada Shakur, both were unpopular, were under surveillance by the FBI, had attempts put on their lives, imprisoned, and exiled from the United States. So talking about oppression and injustice is not enough. Singing songs about liberation and healing, not enough. Giving money to marginalized groups, not enough. Naming white supremacy and one's own part in it, either through consent or compliance, not enough. Moving beyond one's own discomfort around race, oppression, and trauma, important first steps. Great therapeutic release. Still, not enough. So now, my yes. My school, which is like 99% of Minnesota schools, is seeped in white dominance and white supremacy culture. Recently, I started to use my voice in a way that's making my principal quite upset because I'm being non-compliant to his white supremacy ways of operating. Non-compliance puts my job at risk. I'm also being non-compliant with my other supervisor around the topics of coaching in the white supremacy way that it's being done. Non-compliance puts my job at risk. Still, I choose to put myself in danger of being fired because the student and family population at my school is black and brown bodies, descendants who need and deserve liberation, justice, and healing. Liberation, justice, and healing are dangerous acts that require real risks. But aren't our descendants worth that risk? Aren't we worth shifting how we operate in order to leave a legacy of healing, justice, and liberation? What real risks are you willing to take for them today? Come, let us worship. Our reading this morning is called The Layers by Stanley Kunitz. And I just want to mention that he wrote this when he was 90 years old, especially the last sentences. I've walked through many lives, some of them my own. And I am not who I was though some principle of being abides from which I struggle not to stray. When I look behind as I am compelled to look before I gather strength to proceed on my journey, I see the milestones dwindling toward the horizon and the slow fires trailing from the abandoned campsites over which scavenger angels wheel on heavy wings. Oh, I have made myself a tribe out of my true affections, and my tribe is scattered. How shall the heart be reconciled to its feasts of losses? In a rising wind, the manic dust of my friends, those who fell along the way, bitterly stings my face, yet I turn. I turn.
exalting somewhat with my will intact to go wherever I need to go. And every stone on the road precious to me. In my darkest night, when the moon was covered and I roamed through wreckage, a nimbus-clouded voice directed me. Live in the layers, not on the litter. Though I lack the art to decipher it, no doubt the next chapter in my book of transformations is already written. I am not done with my changes. Several years ago, I sat with a circle of colleagues. We were about to embark on a chaplaincy training program together at a local hospital. This circle of ministers and seminary students from various faith traditions, ethnicities, and ages would hopefully be the trusted colleagues that I would turn to after making rounds and ministering to patients. We would use the wisdom of the circle to check things out with one another. Vent, question, be challenged, challenge, observe, learn, take risks, and most of all, love one another into our ministry. The opening assignment of our first day together was to speak for 30 minutes about our lives and our history. For those of us in the room who were under the age of 30, this was a daunting task. Each person invariably started out by saying, I'm not sure if I can fill up 30 minutes. And for those of us over the age of 30, the task was just as daunting. But for a very different reason. How on earth am I going to squish 50 years into 30 minutes? Here's what became clear to me. I could cherry pick the ins and outs of my life to make myself look good, talk about my accomplishments, my gifts, or I could talk about my historical context, the wounds my family has bequeathed to me, the things that wake me up at night, the things I struggle with, the things that have saved my life. And if indeed this group was to function as it should, to really help me grow more fully as a minister and a spiritual healer, then I had to tell a more layered story in my allotted 30 minutes. I was being invited to live in the layers, not on the litter. This month we are playing with the idea of our lives as sacred text what does it mean to interpret a life as a sacred text? What is it to live our lives as if they were meant to be read, to guide and support the generations coming behind us, as Darren so beautifully challenged us? What are trustworthy practices 
of drawing out meaning of a text. One of the big no-nos in any kind of text analysis or sacred reading is something called proof texting. It's when you find a passage in the Bible, or any text for that matter, that supports a point you want to make or a belief you want to uphold, and ignoring the context, contradictory passages, the writer's intent, the communities to whom they were speaking, the layers of meaning in any given story or Bible chapter. For example, we might take Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, which states, it is as useful to educate a woman as it is to educate a female house cat. Yes, this sentence is in Little Women, but it's not an accurate reflection of the book as a whole, which is about the agency and courage of women, or the off-sided spare the rod and spoil the child, which is not actually in the Bible, but a satirical image from a 17th century poet, Samuel Barber. The actual passage is from Proverbs 13:24. The entire chapter is about wisdom, how to make wisdom emerge in communities, in child rearing, in families. The actual passage is, those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. And those who love their children care enough to discipline them. But the term rod is totally misinterpreted in our current reading. A rod in the context of that time was a tool used by shepherds to guide, to protect. And discipline means to teach, to provide frameworks for practice and learning. A more accurate phrasing might be, teaching discipline allows children to develop self-discipline and helps them become emotionally and socially mature, secure adults. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Any seminary worth its salt cautions against cherry-picking passages that simply prove a point or a theological stance. When we proof text of the Bible, a story, a life, we cut away the very meaning of sacred in sacred text. We disrespect the whole, the holy, if you will, the spirit that longs to speak truth in our lives. There are all kinds of frameworks and practices that keep us honest as theologians and spiritual seekers. There are ways to break open and look at the parts of any given work for the purpose of making sense of the work as a whole, to draw out a more honest and nuanced meaning as best we can. There are ways to have a deep encounter with the holy through sound spiritual and study practices. To study a text, we look at context, what was happening in the world, what was happening in the communities in and around the author. We look at the writer or the artist themselves and ask, what was their historical, cultural, personal, religious contexts? We ask ourselves, who was the text intended for? 
To what degree did the speaker and the receiver share a common world experience? We examined the many ways a word or a phrase might be translated or interpreted. We check our assumptions. We ask, does this work invite us to consider ultimate matters of God, the mystery, alienation, evil, salvation, suffering, reconciliation, love, justice, liberty, freedom, grace. We open ourselves to the holy encounter. When my mother turned 89 a few years back, and it was apparent that she would soon be unaware of who she was or where she came from or who I was, for that matter, I decided to make a scrapbook for her, for her birthday, a touchstone for memories to surface and connections to be strengthened. I poured over papers and photos. I sifted through the litter of her life and tried to unearth the layers, the context of the world in which she lived, the personal questions she was grappling with, the very translation of her choices. I tried to check my assumptions, which is not easy to do as the oldest daughter. And I opened myself to an encounter with the holy. In the litter, I found a draft of a poem she was working on. My mother had dreamed of being a serious writer, but that was not the way of things. She had children and an unreliable and sometimes scary husband. But there was this piece I pulled from the rubble. It begins, images of generations past will touch you and merge into your own. Not before my death, dear daughter, will you perceive the merging, but it will come. My mom had written this to me when she was about the same age that I am now. It was a time when I had set a clear boundary with my parents and had asked to take a break from seeing them or corresponding with them while I tried to figure out what I thought about my own life, having my own interpretation of my upbringing, the abuse and the subterfuge the harm and the love, which would made it even more confusing. I think my mother's poem was part of her grappling with the surprise at my request and trying to hold out hope that we would find a way to someday reconcile. It's a beautiful piece. And I heard stories in that poem that I have never heard before like my great-grandmother walking alongside a wagon with one baby toddling alongside her and another cradled at her chest. Like my grandmother running across the farmyard with a shovel to beat off the man who intended to attack my nine-year-old mother until he met my fierce shovel-wielding grandma or the long, unrelenting days of hanging clothes in the noonday sun generation after generation on the plains of Nebraska. 
I'm so lucky to have this peace now that my mother is dead. And I can't tell you the solace it gives me when I read the last lines. My mother is shaping your mind, she writes, through my experiences, and I pass these images on to you. I give them to you, my daughter. You have been shaped and touched in unknown and powerful ways. And at my death, this strength of generations will be yours at last. It is a beautiful piece, and it is a proof-texted representation of my ancestral history. My mom whitewashes history to write a compelling and uncomplicated narrative, something to be proud of rather than wrestled with. My history is bound up with broken treaties and the brutalization of the Omaha, the Otto, the Missouri, the Pawnee, the Arapaho, and the Cheyenne of the Nebraska territories. My mother never speaks of the people who starved so her mother could hang laundry. She doesn't mention the children ripped from their homes so that she and her family could walk on shining new turned soil and the nations decimated so my mother's family could homestead on affordable land. Yes, strong and wild raging rivers of determined women run through my veins, along with the rivers of dirty deals, cruelty, and genocide. I am all of it. This is a more complex and trustworthy reading of the sacred text that is my life. This is what it means to live in the layers and not on the litter. To not proof text my story, to make my family, my people look better. Instead, it unearths something useful, a container in which I can vent, question, be challenged, challenge, observe, learn, take risks for justice and liberation, to live an ancestral life. When I sit across from a youth in my office or an elder in a hospital bed, I am anchored by my universalist faith and the saving gospel that every person is of value. Every person has intrinsic worth and dignity. They are sacred text. This faith stance means I endeavor to understand the whole of their text, the wounds they carry, and the spiritual tethers that sustain. It doesn't mean that I don't challenge or say hard things. It does mean that I commit myself to connecting with the life before me as a holy writ and to be a thoughtful and holistic reader. I hold in my heart context. What is happening in the world? What is happening in the communities in and around this beloved person? What are their historical, cultural, personal, and religious contexts? Do I share a common world of experience or is it different? 
How does this beloved person use language and story? I check my own assumptions. I ask, what are the events, the experiences, the connections in this life that speak to the ultimate matters of God, the mystery, alienation, evil, salvation, suffering, reconciliation, love, justice, liberty, freedom, grace. I open my heart to the holy encounter. I can tell you this posture of open-hearted listening and wondering rearranges the molecules. It shifts the energies, makes for surprising and grace-filled moments of connection and healing. Let's face it, we are all dying to be loved and understood as sacred beings, read as sacred texts. And these practices are not just for ministers or chaplains, they're for all of us, writers and receivers of sacred texts. These practices change lives. As a young woman, I struggled with the sense of hopelessness and despairing. I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. I had such a good family, didn't I? It wasn't until I sat with a therapist who understood how to interpret a sacred text that I came to realize the incredible harm that went on under our roof. It was through solid spiritual practices of reading and studying the sacred text of my life to be held in love by my spouse and my communities that I began to breathe more freely. It took every ounce of courage I had to tell my family that I wanted a break, that I needed time to interpret my own life. And the scariest thing of all was to tell them why. I had to be willing to lose my family to gain it. And as I look back on this story, a new complexifying layer is the privilege of being white and being gay. Family in a white framework functions in a different way than family when this world is dead set against you because of the color of your skin or the texture of your hair. And also the culture of gay community. Friends become family. In my day, us gay folk had to make family out of our friends because so many of us were getting kicked out of our house by our mothers and fathers. I can tell you right now that every one of those women in that time are my sisters. They are my sisters. And I can tell you when I have walked down 35W in a Black Lives Matter action, I've said to myself, I've done hard things before. What are we willing to actually risk, Darren asks, to live into transformation? I am convinced that there is something about engaging a whole story or near as whole as we can make it to complexify rather than simplify. 
this action softens our edges but strengthens the core. It softens the edges but strengthens the core. We move with more compassion towards ourselves and one another when we live in the layers. And we are more willing to risk, to risk action, to risk messiness and the heart work of being in this together with a strength we've never thought we could muster because our core understandings, our wisdom, our faith is true and trustworthy. One of the powerful questions I wrestle with these days is how to become a trustworthy elder. How to help the youth, the generations that are coming up behind me, how to live ancestrally. I can tell you, as someone who has been walking alongside death for some months now, no one cares about how much money you make. No one cares about where you've traveled or the awards you have received. What really matters, what your descendants and your friends will remember is, did you show up? Did you show up? How did you show up in your life? What was your context? What were the obstacles? How did you love and what did you risk? I believe we are here to walk alongside one another as holy beings. We are here to sift through the litter and discover what it is to live in the layers of whole stories and holy lives, to live as ancestors before we die. My family is your family. The risks and sacrifices I would make without hesitation for my sisters, my niece, my spouse, are the risks I must be willing to take for your family. For your family. I can tell you Darren's questions will guide me. They will guide me, dear sister, into my elderhood. Her questions will guide the risks I must take to contribute to racial justice and the freedom and liberation of all people. How do I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come long after I'm gone? Aren't our descendants worth shifting how I operate in order to leave a legacy of justice, healing, and liberation? What real risks am I willing to take for them today? My friends, I will waste my heart on fear no more. I will find the secret bell and make it ring. Let us live into the layers and risk an ancestral life. May it be so, and amen.
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.